Welcome to Simply by Dale HQ. On this podcast, we engage thought leaders on topical issues around law and business in the most simplistic manner. Good day and welcome to the maiden edition of Simply by Dale HQ. Today we are going to be talking cryptocurrencies and the Nigerian financial markets. We will be talking around currency, trade and regulation. And my guest is a very accomplished young Nigerian, Michael Ugo. Michael is the CEO of Freemi Digital, a marketing and distribution company that is home to the largest digital production studio in Nigeria. He is also the pioneer GM of Sony Music West Africa. He is a venture capital investor and he is heavily invested in the cryptocurrencies market. Thank you so much for making the time to join me today on Simply Michael. Yes, my Thank pleasure. You. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Um, so without much ado, we're just going to dive right into it. So today we're going to be talking on cryptocurrencies and the Nigerian market. So, um, Michael, there's been so much going on in the last few months around the cryptos market, especially in Nigeria. In February, to be precise, cryptocurrencies became one of the biggest trends on social media. And at some point, it was the most searched word on Google, especially from this part of the world. Mainstream media also recorded astronomical growth in cryptocurrency adoption in Africa, with Nigeria recording over $400 million in trade in 2020 alone. I mean, this means that there is definitely something worth talking there. So my first question will be for people like me, Michael, who are late adopters or that don't even understand, you know, the cryptocurrencies market at all. What are cryptocurrencies in simple terms and why are they critical to today's digital economy? Um, so I guess trying to be as simple as possible, um, cryptocurrencies are basically digital or virtual currencies, right? Secured by crypto cryptography. It's, um, you know, many, many cryptocurrencies are decentralized networks based on a technology, a new technology called the blockchain te technology. It's been around maybe about 10 years. And the blockchain is basically, basically a distributed ledger, right? That's enforced by computers across the world, across the globe and what have you. And um, I think one of the defining features of cryptocurrencies is that there's generally no central authority like a fiat currency. So with a fiat currency, we have a central bank, um, you know, that issues the Naira, that, you know, monitors and maintains the Naira, um, that increases and decreases circulation. Um, cryptocurrencies generally don't have centralized authority. They are basically decentralized networks. Um, and I guess, you know, this, this makes them quite secure and, you know, quite immune to uh, manipulation um, just because there's so many players involved in them. So, yeah, so just think of virtual currencies. Um, you know, it's, it, it's basically for the, for the online world. And I think um, one of the reasons why they're so prolific today is that traditional cash, traditional fiat, wasn't developed for a digital world. It wasn't built for the internet. Um, I think the internet has literally, you know, it's changed the way we exist, it's changed the way we do business. And fiat currencies or traditional currencies were developed long before the internet came into existence. So yes. we've kind of like just had these two things running alongside each other because, you know, commerce, a lot of commerce happens in, in the digital economy, right? And yeah. we're using traditional finance. 
to you know settle and, and pay and transact with one another. But um, you know, I think one of the drivers of cryptocurrencies is that these are currencies, you know, commodities, securities, or currencies that are built for a digital world. They're built for the internet. Absolutely. So, so I mean, from what you said, I mean, it's interesting that you have said that. Um, I mean, a lot of the things that are driving, you know, adoption will be the fact that it is more amenable to, you know, today's digital world. I mean, and and that that raises a question for me. Do you think that adoption is polarized across generations, or do you think that there is adoption across, you know, different ages? I think that. Um... You know, initially, definitely, there was that polarization, you know, across ages. Um, you know, a lot of older, you know, citizens may not have been used to the internet even till today. Um, and I think, you know, I have kids, you know, a lot of people probably listening have kids. And there's technologies that they're able to adopt much faster than we can as adults, just because of the fact that they're born into it. Like kids have been born into a touchscreen world. When I was growing up, mobile phones had keypads and buttons, but my kids can navigate iPads like there's no tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that um, there has been, a, there initially was a polarization where young people, in, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies made a lot more sense to young people. But I think that, you know, as time has gone on, people have understood that, look, this is, it's about money. Bitcoin is a money network. You know, it's a monetary network. And money involves everybody. Everybody saves, everybody spends, everybody's affected by inflation, everybody's affected by, you know, currency devaluation, everybody's affected by everything that affects money, right? So, um, so as time has gone on and, and Bitcoin has become more mainstream and crypto has become more mainstream, there's been, you know, a lot of changes in that view. So I think there's much less polarization. To, to, to you know, for, as an example, to me, Bitcoin is, is an inflation hedge asset, right? Historically, gold was an inflation hedge asset. So if you explain gold to an older person, they'll get it entirely. They understand what gold is for. They understand what to do with gold. They understand, okay, fine, this is how I protect my wealth, right? It's a wealth preserver. Um, but Bitcoin to me is, is gold 2.0, right? It's better than gold, it's faster than gold, it's newer than gold, it's way more impactful than gold. So I think once you know the old, an older generation is able to wrap their heads around that, um, then it reduces the polarization. But it's not easy because gold has a 5,000 year history and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies only has a 10 year history. 10 years. Right. So yeah, that, 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 you know, initially there was polarization. There still is a level of polarization. But whilst I've been in this space, I've definitely seen the lines get a lot more blurred um, as it goes mainstream and as people start to understand the power of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Okay, interesting. Very interesting perspective there. Um, so let, let's talk about the central banks because they are like you know the big the big players holding the stick in the in, in, in the market, right? So generally, I believe that central banks are polarized across two divides in this market. We have one divide that have positioned as the antagonists who yeah. have either taken the position to ban or to take a public stand against cryptocurrencies. In some cases, they have dissuaded their citizens from dealing in cryptocurrencies. Some have actually outrightly banned transactions in cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Whilst we have on the other divide, some central banks that have 
you know, embraced it. Some have even, you know, developed regulations that allows it to exist side by side their fiat currencies. Correct. And in some cases, developed frameworks to make the market more efficient. I mean, we have a country like China. I mean, we, this is one very funny, you know, example for me. You know, China has banned, you know, trade in other cryptocurrencies within their market, but they are developing their own indigenous, you know, currencies, which tells us that, I mean, there's something there. Can you can you just help us understand why there is this different position from these um, regulators as to their view of cryptocurrencies? It's the same concept, but it seems like there's different stories across, you know, these different um, 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 groups of regulators. What do you think is the reason for this? Um, well, I mean, essentially, all governments, um, you know, and all central banks have have uh, varying agendas. Right. Um, but ultimately speaking, um, historically anyway, um, central banks and generally governments have kind of like had this belief that cryptocurrencies and bitcoins circumvent capital controls. So, you know, one of the key concerns has been, you know, protecting their fiat currency, um, controlling their citizens and maintaining, you know, that centralized monetary system. Right. And, and, and I think that, you know, it, it, it has been apparent in some countries, you know, as you say, some countries have adopted and embraced um, crypto, you know, cryptocurrencies in Bitcoin um, and some have funded right, and banned it. Um, and, and I think it's it just down to governments and central banks, you know, to make that decision. I don't think there's specific reasons, but um, with China, China is historically, uh, you know, a police state. Right. Historically, they like to control their citizens. They like to, you know, have that control in, you know, in the central government, in their central bank. They don't want a decentralized entity where people are allowed to do what they want to do. Um, and they, they don't want people circumventing, you know, their rules and their regulations. So despite the fact that they have all these rules and, you know, they ban Bitcoin, you still see a massively, you still see a healthy amount of Bitcoin transacted in China, you know, using paper technology. Um, likewise, in Europe, we have countries like Estonia and Malta have outrightly embraced cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin because they've seen it as a way to get a competitive advantage um, in society. They've seen that, you know, on their different countries on different sides of the divide, you know, if there's so much innovation happening in cryptocurrencies, there's a lot of money from private equity and venture capitalists flooding into cryptocurrencies. There's utilization from, you know, from a market, right? And, you know, Bitcoin has grown in market capitalization over the last 10 years. So some countries are like, let's actually embrace this because this could be good for our country. Let's attract the entrepreneurs. Let's attract those investments into our countries. So you're seeing countries like Malta, Estonia, and others who have outright, you know, policies, government policies to attract Bitcoin companies, to attract cryptocurrency entrepreneurs into their countries. Um, and that's obviously for their, their reasons, you know, they want to catch up, um, you know, with more developed economies. And then you have, you know, I guess the largest economy in the world, like the, the US, um, who are kind of like, you know, in between, right? The US understands innovation. The US understands that, you know, with technology or with having a lead in technology, you can maintain your lead as a global economy or as the world's number one economy. And so we've seen a stance in the US where initially there was some pessimism um, with Bitcoin, where, uh, you know, the SEC classified Bitcoin more as a commodity than as a currency, right? But we're seeing more and more softening of that stance. 
where senators are actually openly and outrightly supporting Bitcoin, large companies are safely investing into Bitcoin, pension funds, hedge funds, family offices, and the big banks, from JP Morgan to Goldman Sachs, and everyone in between, at some point has written off Bitcoin, but in today's economy has kind of like embraced Bitcoin. And, you know, the government stance has helped that. Um, Estonia and Malta are, are, are countries and economies that we see embracing cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin openly, right? Now, these are small economies. And because they're small economies, small economies are always looking for ways to create competitive advantage in the, in, in the world, right? Because maybe they're lacking something. The US is a large economy. China is a large economy. India is a large economy. You have smaller economies like Malta and Estonia who have to come up with innovative ways to attract investment, attract FDI, you know, attract entrepreneurs. So we're seeing them actually launch campaigns and develop government policies that actually embrace cryptocurrency companies, embrace Bitcoin as a technology, um, and actually, they, you know, they, they attract them into their economies. I believe Estonia have, you know, these kind of like e-visas, you know, you're able to actually set up a Bitcoin company or a crypto company remotely from Estonia and get like a residency permit as long as, you know, you're transacting and the business is based and registered in Estonia or what have you. Similar thing with Malta. Binance, one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world, I believe they're based in Malta, right? You know, they're, they're owned by Chinese, but they're based in Malta because Malta realized that, look, we actually need to attract these innovative new age companies. So, so you have some, some economies that are very pro crypto and very pro Bitcoin. And then you have economies like the US, which I believe straddles, you know, two sides of the coin. Where, between, yeah. yeah, no, no pun intended, but you know, you have to so historically, they've been, you know, against Bitcoin, but I mean, the SEC was early to point out, okay, this is more of a commodity than anything. Um, you know, they're still working on true regulation for Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. But generally, we're seeing a lot of politicians, a lot of the U.S. wealthy citizens come out to support Bitcoin. Um, Brian mm -hmm. Brooks, who was a former, you know, deputy um, officer of the, you know, officer of the, current, the currency office, the controller of the currency in the U.S., he used to be a Coinbase employee. Coinbase is one of the biggest crypto exchanges in the world. So we're seeing a lot of the big banks embrace, embrace Bitcoin now, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, a lot of the big family offices, a lot of the big hedge funds, you know, a lot of the pension yeah. funds are now embracing Bitcoin, you know, and a lot of the big entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, right? We're seeing Absolutely. them embrace Bitcoin more and more as the US government softens its stance towards cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. and, and Bitcoin. So yeah, there's varying approaches across the world. Um, but yeah, I think at the, at the center of it all is control. Governments are afraid of losing control. Must be. Um, and, and that takes me back, takes me to my next question. And I want us to bring it back home a little bit. There was a heavy, heavy resistance in February when the Central Bank of Nigeria um, came up with this um, regulatory piece saying that um, all their regulated entities were not to transact or to, or to facilitate trade in any way or form that involved cryptocurrencies, there was a very heavy resistance. And my question to you would be, would you, would you, would you agree if, if one were to say that the high rate of inflation, inflation, volatile currencies, and the poor banking infrastructure across the African continent will be the major enablers of adoption of cryptocurrencies? 
Um, I know that many people have positioned that after mobile money, cryptocurrencies will be the next big market for foreign investors in Africa. So in spite of the fact that, you know, people would say that we have um, very low um, technology and internet penetration, there still seems to be such a huge, you know, drive towards um, cryptocurrencies, understanding, you know, what they are and even, you know, the volume of trade. So would you say that these are some of the things that are inching people closer to um, cryptocurrency markets and cryptocurrency transactions? even when our government seems to be taking a different, you know, stand and a different position on the matter. Definitely. I mean, you know, 100%, you know, these are enablers and it's not peculiar to Nigeria, but, um, you know, in Nigeria, yes, you know, the governments have banned, um, they've banned the on and off ramp. They have, so the government, Nigerian government hasn't banned Bitcoin. And I think they're actually softening their stance. But what they have banned are the on and off ramps. And those are the banks. Right, they've banned you know the on and off ramp, so you can't change fiat to Bitcoin and Bitcoin back to fiat. You know the banks help you do that. Um, so though that though that's been banned, you know there are P2P networks that people use. Um, but but regardless of that, you know that things like currency devaluation, um, high inflation rates, you know poor banking infrastructure, hundred percent these are enablers. Um, if I'm a saver, why, why should I be? You know I work. I'm a productive, you know individual within a within a country. Why should I be penalized for saving? And year on, year out, the price of everything goes up. So if I'm saving in a currency that is continuously devalued, right, that it's being ripped apart by, by, by inflation, you know, why would I choose to continue to save in that currency if I'm given an option, right? So yeah. at the end of the day, it, 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 it's going to happen. I, I, I learned about cryptocurrencies because obviously I was being affected by some of these things. A lot of savers in Nigeria or across Africa are affected by this. You know, in Venezuela, in Argentina, savers are affected by inflation, by volatile currencies, right? Um, and then when, when it comes to something like poor banking infrastructure, 100%. So, you know, I've been involved in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin for some years now. And, um, you know, last year, you know, decentralized finance or DeFi, as it's called, you know, came to the fore as, you know, I guess a new trend within the cryptocurrency space. And I've lived, I've lived and done business in Nigeria. And in the 10 years of actually doing business in Nigeria, I've never been given a loan by a Nigerian bank. You know, it's been very difficult. I've banked with several banks. I've, been, I've approached banks for loans and I've never been given them. But being understanding decentralized finance and being in that space, you know, I'm able to take loans from via smart contracts in a crypto-based world, right? Just using Bitcoin as a collateral. So, I've been able so, to sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you, Mike. For the benefit of, of our listeners, can you just explain what this decentralized financing means? Can you just try so, to share the explanation? So, so I guess centralized finance is traditional finance. It's banks, you know, they have banks and central banks in the center of centralized finance, right? Traditional finance. With decentralized finance, um, it, these are these are protocols, right? Driven by smart contracts, primarily on the Ethereum network. And what happens with these protocols is that you know it's based on code. I can just because Bitcoin is code, right? I can literally tell the smart contract that hey, I have Bitcoin of this value. I need a loan of this value. The contract, the smart contract, the Ethereum smart contract can basically then assess the value of 
what loan I can get, right? And it creates a marketplace of buyers and sellers. You know, we buyers of loans and sellers of loans, right? So I can go into this right. market and say, look, I want to use my Bitcoin as a collateral and I want a US dollar denominated loan, right? The smart contract would match me with, you know, someone that's looking with a lender, with a lender right? Real time. I can, get a, I, can get a, I can get a smart contract based loan in DeFi in about, in about five minutes, right? I don't talk to anybody. I don't see anybody. It's all computed. So decentralized finance, literally it's trust. It's basically trustless finance. So I'm a party, someone else is a party. There's no intermediary like a bank. It's a smart contract that sits in between the two parties. And once my, once we transact, my Bitcoin goes into, you know, into the smart contract, like in a form of escrow, right? And then I have to repay that loan within three months, six months, a year, or whatever it is. And once I've repaid that loan, I then receive back my asset, which is Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. So So, so definitely, I mean, things like that, that would obviously, that enables cryptocurrencies even more. If I'm facing challenges, getting a loan from my bank, and I can get a loan in five minutes from a decentralized, you know, smart contract from a smart contract. You know, why wouldn't I do more? It's a no-brainer. It is indeed a no-brainer. So, so exactly. let me let me let me let me ask you this, right? So the other time when you were talking, you talked about um, you talked about P2P um, transactions, you know, yeah. as a response to the 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 position of um, of um, our central bank and the fact that. Um, you know, the exchanges perhaps are no longer, you know, able to operate, you know, in, in, in efficiently in this market in, in response to the the CBN, um, the Central Bank of Nigeria directive. So my question will be, how how do these trades that are done on a P2P basis, how are they settled? How how do you how do you settle them? And does it raise any any concern? Does it does it heighten the risk of these transactions? when you're not able to, you know, have an independent um, um, party, you know, send the trade between, between two, 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 two people in the market. Definitely. Definitely. So, so using peer-to-peer networks does introduce a level of risk that is dampened by the exchanges. Um, you know, the exchange works as a centralized party that's able to, you know, create a marketplace for buyers and sellers of cryptocurrencies and fiat. But you know, regardless of that, um, if if you need to get something done, you get it done, right? And peer to peer is the way you know we get it done in this environment right now. Um, so I guess with peer to peer, the key thing is that you know you identify a buyer and a seller. And a lot of peer to peer transactions happen in basic groups like WhatsApp, Telegram, Discord. Mm-hmm. You have all these merchants who set up these groups, and um, you know there, there's a level of trust that is required for you know peer to peer trading. Now there are platforms across the world like local bitcoins and local cryptos that are peer-to-peer platforms, um, and then you're seeing platforms like Binance actually develop um, better peer-to-peer systems. Since the ban, Binance is a pretty big, um, you know, player within the space. I actually invested in a in a crypto platform called um, Coin Profile, and we're currently working on developing our own peer-to-peer um, system right now. Um, just because, you know, that's how people want to transact. And if you create an environment where it's much safer than a WhatsApp group or a Telegram group, and there's a level yeah. of transparency and, and there's some some kind of platform that is behind it, then it does engender that that safety. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, peer-to-peer, it's literally just it. There's, without exchanges or banks, whether they're there or not, you as an individual may want Bitcoin, 
I may have Naira. I may want to, you know, sell my Naira and get Bitcoin. You may have Bitcoin and want to sell your Naira. And peer-to-peer -peer is just us finding each other. Wherever we find each other, you know, we transact, whether it's Telegram or a peer-to-peer -peer platform like CoinProfile. Right. So, so my next question, um, uh, Michael, at my last check, one Bitcoin trades at about $58,000 or thereabouts. Whilst the Ethereum is trading for about, I think, about of $1,800. Yeah. Can you please just, just help help some of us, you know, that are not that uh, knowledgeable or vested in, in the cryptocurrencies market to understand how would anyone who is not, you know, ultra high net worth or that is not, you know, within the, 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 the profile of what you would call high net worth, be able to make investments in this space? How does it work? If I had my $10, am I able to invest in cryptocurrencies or do I have to, you know, just level up until I'm able to, you know, buy a coin for $58,000 or thereabouts? <laughs> I mean, how, how, no, how, no, how no. does this even work? No. Tell us. No, so, so, you know, you'll find that um, as time progresses, it will become rarer and rarer, rarer to even find people that have one coin or five coins and what have you. So, you know, you, you can actually, you can actually break Bitcoin and Ethereum down into smaller fractions, right? Okay. And um, the term for, a, you know, the smallest um, fraction of a Bitcoin or, or Bitcoin broken down is based on from Bitcoin to Satoshi. So where you have Naira and Kobo, right? In Bitcoin, you have Bitcoin and Satoshis, right? Where you have Naira and Kobo, in Ethereum, you have Ethereum or Ether and Wei, right? Wei is W-E-I. So those are the smaller units. So you can buy $10 worth of Bitcoin. You can buy $5 worth of, of Ethereum, right? In one Bitcoin, um, I believe there are about 100 million Satoshis in one Bitcoin, right? And at the point where, you know, I believe Bitcoin will reach a million dollars, right? Per Bitcoin, you know, potentially in the future. And at the point where Bitcoin reaches a million dollars per Bitcoin, one Satoshi will equal one dollar, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think for Ethereum, Ethereum, the number's even higher. So the smallest unit of Ethereum is a way. And I think there's something like one quintillion way in an ether. <laughs> so, you know, quintillion is a big number. Don't ask me how many zeros are there, but there's I'm a lot. I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> no. So, so it's not the reserve of ultra high net worth individuals at all. Right. Anybody and anybody can actually be part of the Bitcoin monetary network. You know, I see it as a form of savings. You know, my I, my mom has savings in Bitcoin. My sisters, my brothers, my wife all have savings in Bitcoin today. You know, they're not Dangote or Otedola. They do OK, but, um, you know, they're able to save, you know, from their salaries into Bitcoin. Even my staff. So at Christmas, I tried to get my staff involved more and more in Bitcoin. I talked to them about it. And I awarded all my staff Bitcoin as Christmas bonus. And, uh, you know, they've been able to now start their own journey of saving. Interesting. Right. Let's talk about mining, right? Um, so we understand that this is the process of creating the crypto coins, right? Can you yeah. just explain to us what, what, what this concept is like? So we know that in conventional banking with the with the fiat currency, we know that the central bank, you know, just um, means the, the 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 money, and yeah. and there is, you know, some measure of um, currency control. So, 
who is doing this mining? How does a, a cryptocurrency come into being? Can I mine? Can you mine? I mean, who owns this mine? The, the mining fields where this these cryptocurrencies are created, and can the people who are mining manipulate the market? How does this How does this work? Um. So technically, yes, anybody can mine. It's not the preserve of a central bank or a central authority. Um, technically speaking, anyone can mine. However, over the years, um, it's got harder to mine. So basically, when you mine Bitcoin, what you're literally doing is solving complex calculations using computers, right? So, you know, in solving these complex calculations, you're able to unlock Bitcoin from the Bitcoin network. That's the reward. The reward is Bitcoin, right? Once you solve these problems and you keep the Bitcoin network secure, um, so it's literally just math that actually keeps track of, you know, all the transactions on the Bitcoin network. So it's the ledger, and you're just adding to the ledger and adding to the ledger and solving problems and adding to the ledger, right? Bitcoin nowadays is quite capital intensive because as Bitcoin evolves, the mining rewards reduce and the calculations get harder. So as the calculations get harder, you need more powerful computing technology, right? Right now, I think the most popular mining, you know, machines are like these ASIC miners. And even if you try and go, if you try and buy an ASIC miner, you may be on a waiting list for a year to get one right now, right? So it's not like yesterday where people can attach their personal computers at home and mine Bitcoin, because literally when Bitcoin first started, you can literally mine at home. So now we're seeing much larger companies and corporations become miners of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So uh, there are other cryptocurrencies that are you can probably mine from home, right? I think Ethereum is, you can probably still mine from home possibly, but as the Bitcoin network becomes more secure and grows, it gets harder and harder to actually mine for Bitcoin. So you need money. I mean, these companies are like, you know, worth millions of dollars. They own millions of computers that they put in these massive data centers to literally just hammer away and complete these complex calculations. Now, yes, um, anybody can create a coin, um, you know, definitely. And there are a lot of there are a lot of scam coins out there. But I think what makes Bitcoin, you know, obviously the most robust is that it's had the most history. You know, it you know the most complex calculations are being solved on the Bitcoin monetary network. Um, so that and that's what makes it very, very, very secure, right? Um, so yeah, it's decentralized and that does introduce some risks, especially in this crypto, crypto based world where you can develop a coin, you can create a, you know, this podcast is simply, 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 right? You can de design a simply coin if you want to and, you Absolutely. know, and, and start, and start marketing. thinking about that now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, people do, people do, you, you can, um, but I guess, you know, the key thing is that it's about. You know, it's also about understanding how do we actually, you know, what what is behind this coin? You know, each there's over six thousand cryptocurrencies in existence today. Of those six thousand cryptocurrencies, um, Bitcoin probably has about sixty percent of that market share, right? Ethereum probably another ten to twenty percent, and then the other five thousand nine hundred and ninety nine or ninety whatever cryptocurrencies, you know, uh, are in the remaining share. Right. So we're seeing a lot of coins be a lot of projects launch daily. Um, and, and, you know, that's why we do need regulation. So with cryptocurrencies and decentralization, it doesn't stop you or me developing a cryptocurrency that, you know, that we feel may solve a problem at home, like in Nigeria. Right. 
But what we right. need to see, we need regulation in order to make sure that we actually we're actually creating safe environments for people to actually get involved in our projects. So I'm going to jump right on that statement you just made, and I'm going to ask you, um, as someone who's as invested as you are in this market, what is the ideal kind of regulation that is needed to 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 instill you know um, confidence in the market? What what would you want to see, and is this going to be driven? you know, locally at the at the country leg or does it have to be some kind of um, global measure or is it going to be driven by the particular, you know, creators of the coin themselves? I mean, just how, how do you think that this market would evolve from where it is right now in terms of regulation? Um, so, so, I mean, it's, it's going to be driven in different ways, right? I think that at, there's going to be ways that regulation is driven at government level. And there's going to be ways that regulation is driven at protocol level. So at protocol level, we're seeing a lot more of the growth in what we call DAOs, DAOs, right? Which are like decentralized autonomous organizations. So with these DAOs, I guess you can liken a DAO to almost like a board, but it's not restricted just to a board. It's the general community that manages and governs a protocol, right? So that's a level of self-regulation that we're seeing anyway, right? As mm. crypto widely grown and you know valuations are getting you know you know widely wildly increasing, the introduction of DAOs actually creates a level of self-regulation. Now at government level, I think that you know with any technology, you don't want to be heavy-handed. Now technology, you know, with innovation and technology, if you're too heavy-handed, you actually lose out. On a lot of potential value you know we've seen a lot of technologies develop outside of regulate or outside of regulation if you overly regulate you then remove that that you, know, you remove an edge from innovation so i think having light touch regulation you know, creating things like sandboxes where you know crypto companies can set up and test, test. out the thesis yes and test out you know the narrative test out the protocols you know it's great we're seeing you know actual protocols like Polkadot and Kusama, who are actually now, you know, new, they're, 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 I guess like you wouldn't call them like an Ethereum killer, but, you know, Polkadot is almost like a smart contract based, or, or it's, a, it's a layer one protocol, like Ethereum is. But what, what Polkadot has now done is Polkadot have now developed a sister protocol called Kusama, right? So within Kusama, they now allow crypto projects to test out their, their own individual protocols within a real world environment, but it's a test environment. It's a bit hard to explain, but Kusama is now like a real world test environment for the Polkadot network. So if you do well in a Kusama environment, which is a test environment, you then move yeah. over to a more regulated environment called the Polkadot protocol, right? And I'm very, I'm very bullish on Polkadot and Kusama as protocols within and of themselves. So, you know, I think governments are still trying to catch up, to be quite honest. And, you know, we're going to see what regulation happens. Recently, before Donald Trump left office, they were, they were trying to, um, I think Steve Mnuchin, um, I think the former Treasury Secretary, was trying to introduce regulation where you had to literally KYC your personal wallet, like your Bitcoin wallet or your Ethereum wallet, yes. right? And I think that you had to almost KYC on each transaction. I mean, that was just crazy because then you slow down the space, the pace of innovation. You move yes. back to that environment where you're working within that SWIFT or SEPA network where it takes three days 
to transact money. All I'm doing, if I'm moving money from Nigeria to the UK, it shouldn't take me three days to seven days to do that in 2021, really? in the age Absolutely. of the internet, right? And these old networks were the kings of that. They created these bottlenecks that slowed down commerce, yes. right? Now, if you yes. overly regulate the crypto space, crypto slowed all that down. I can actually transact value between Nigeria and China in two minutes, as long as it settles on the Bitcoin on the Bitcoin block on the blockchain network, right? Yes. My, my client will see value. I haven't needed to use Swift. You know, my transaction costs have been cut down. Transaction time has been cut down. We don't want to lose that innovation. We don't want government Absolutely. regulation to lose that. Right? Yes. yes. So, so, so regulation, it's still developing. It's still developing. In all honesty, we're not sure which way it's going, but we are seeing a softening of the stance. When I first started investing in cryptocurrencies, the word was no, it's got, it's put, don't, no one, our citizens, no one should buy crypto. It's dangerous. It's this, it's that, you know, run yeah. away from it. But now I think governments well, are realizing that, that. Michael, you have put your head, your, your hands, your feet and everything, everything there. Everything. I know. Yeah. And, <laughs> so, and now so. we're seeing, and now, you know, and it's paying off because now that we're seeing a softening of government policy towards cryptocurrencies. I mean, look, the Visa network just integrated USDC. USDC is a US dollar stable coin on the Ethereum network. So basically, as long as I have a Visa card, I can use crypto and pay in a shop. Literally, that was introduced by Visa yesterday. So the speed yeah. of innovation is amazing. I know yesterday but, but, before, but the, I had the, no bit the out there on that, right? Sorry? I said the jury is still out there on that 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 um, stable currency introduction and whether benchmarking it to dollars is the um, right idea or way to go. I, I mean, you need stable coins. If you're in the crypto space, you need stable coins because yes, there is there is level of volatility within you know a lot of cryptocurrencies. So stable coins introducing real world introduces real world stability. So USDC. You know, so there's two key stable coins back, you know, the US dollar based. USDT, which is US dollar tether, yes, there are a lot of issues and concern about USDT. I mean, they recently had um, a court case with the New York State, you know, um, district attorney. Um, they, I think, I believe they settled, you know, because one of the issues was were they operating a fractional reserve? Now, in crypto, you're not supposed to operate like a bank, you're not supposed to operate a fractional reserve. If you say you have, one million dollar usdt you're supposed to have that backed by actual us dollars right yeah. so usdc is actually regulated and approved by the securities and exchange commission in the usa and the yeah. usdc as a as an ethereum stable coin is actually growing in adoption is growing in awareness the only issue with usdc is that the us government does have ways to freeze your usdc Whereas, you know, something like USDT, they don't have that control. I think USDT yeah. is more, more decentralized than USDC. But stable coins are an important part of the crypto ecosystem. Of the, of the, of the whole, of the whole um, framework, yes. 100%. So we are almost completely out of time. I need to ask you my final question so that we can wrap up the session. It's been such an interesting you know, conversation with you, Michael. Um, so let me, let, me, let me ask this quickly, right? Do you see um, cryptocurrencies as commodity or currency as one who's heavily invested in that market? I mean, which one, which one serves your better interest, looking at it as commodity or currency? And 
how, I mean, would this change depending on the circumstance? Um, if I'm being honest with you, like, yeah, there's a lot of questions around this. And, you know, Bitcoin does have a little bit of an identity crisis, to be very honest. You know, the, the initial, when Bitcoin was originally conceived, right, it was conceived as a form of payment. Yes. That, that's the truth of the matter. It was conceived by Satoshi Nakamoto as a form of payment. Now, Bitcoin and blockchain technology in general has developed over the last 10 years, right? And now I guess it, it's gone through that stage. It's at the stage now where it's seen more as a store of value than as, you know, a pay, an actual payment mechanism. Now, yes, you can, you know, it's difficult to say, if you're looking at a commodity, I mean, like gold or copper, you know, it's, it's not so easy to buy, sell and price goods using gold and copper, but you can actually buy, sell and price goods using Bitcoin, right? So there are some currency elements within it. But um, I mean, from a, from a regulator's perspective, you know, the, the, the US um, Securities and Exchange Commission have, for all intents and purposes, you know, classified Bitcoin as more of a commodity even though they know that it has these, these, you know, these differing, you know, sides to it. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, like I said, for me, I, I don't spend my Bitcoin. I just don't, I save it and I continue to save Bitcoin. So it's called stacking sats. So I continue to stack sats. Um, you know, there's a, there's an old story of a guy who bought, um, <clears throat> he bought two pizzas and he spent 10,000 Bitcoin on those pizzas. This was like 10 years ago in the early days of Bitcoin. Now that's seen as madness. How would you spend 10,000 Bitcoin on two pizzas? I mean, those would be the most expensive pizzas on the face of this. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> you know, there's, there's, a, there's a more modern take on this where Elon Musk has now started to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment to buy a Tesla. Right? And it makes sense uh -huh. that today, yes. you know, a Bitcoin may be $58,500. So maybe with one Bitcoin, you can buy a Tesla. But in 10 mm -hmm. years, if Bitcoin reaches a million dollars per Bitcoin, you have to yeah. bear it. He's going to be the one benefiting on the upside. I bought a Tesla for a million dollars. Right? So, so I, I do look at it more as a store of value and as a savings tool. Michael, please let me ask you my final question because we really, really, really need to put a plug on this right now. Um... Sure. So do you think, I mean, some people feel that um, there is no way to explain the underlying fundamentals that influence the value of cryptocurrencies. So we just know that it's a game of scarcity. I mean, it's a, it's a game of supply and demand, and that's not really how currencies work, right? So for instance, let's use Bitcoin. Would you say that Bitcoins are on a steroid? Are we expecting the bubble to bust soon, or are we really inching for that to go to... Um, maybe a hundred thousand dollars before the end of the year i mean what 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 are you saying what what are you thinking easy, you know easy. I, think, I think yeah bitcoin is easily a hundred thousand dollars this year easily um so you know i don't think it's a bubble i think you know for me you know fiat currencies are a bubble what what gives the government any right to just print paper into oblivion right the u.s government the nigerian government they're busy just printing and printing and printing Right, that's a bubble. That something must be a correction. Right? It's just and you know, and we're just trusting the government that the value of this fiat currency today is the value of this fiat currency tomorrow. But we've learned better. And so essentially, 
you know, Bitcoin may be in, it may, you know, everything enters a bubble. There's been real estate bubbles, you know, tech bubbles, you know, stock bubbles. It doesn't take away from the value of these sectors, right? And essentially anyway, Bitcoin is undervalued. It's un, it's massively undervalued, even at $58,000 or 50, I think it's 59,000, almost $60,000 today. So for me, if Bitcoin for me is gold, right? Gold 2.0, right? Then we have to look at the market capitalization of gold. You know, Bitcoin is, it's faster than, I can't take, I can't take gold into uh, a, a Mr. Biggs or into a shop and, you know, give them a piece of gold and get something from it back. But I can potentially transact in Bitcoin in this day and age, right? You know, gold is heavy. I can't carry gold everywhere. Bitcoin lives on my phone or on my laptop. Mike, we need to wrap up the conversation now. We are completely out of time. But no it's problem. been such an interesting time. I'm sure that our listeners have learned so much listening to you. I'm sure that um, a lot of questions have been answered. Um, we are really, really grateful that you could make the time to be with us today. Thank you so very much. Um, thank you and um, have a very good afternoon. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Simply by Deal HQ. Deal HQ is an Africa-focused transaction advisory firm out of Lagos, Nigeria. To know more about our services, please visit our website at www.dealhqpartners.com or follow us on our social media pages on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Deal HQ Partners. To find out more about our services, visit www.dealhqpartners.com. See you on the next episode.